In your way back to your seat. Glad to be with you again here in the house of the Lord today, filling in for Pastor Steve. I appreciate the opportunity and the grace and the mercy that you guys have continually shown, not only me, but my family as well, um, especially with our four rambunctious boys. But um, Well, I just want to start off with a short introduction. You guys know from the last time we were together, I preached on James chapter 1, uh, verse 1. And we became very familiar with James, who is the Lord's earthly brother. We talked about how James wasn't a believer when Christ was still walking the earth, but after his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, he appears to James, and James, by the grace of God, he, he believes. He becomes a follower or a disciple of Christ, whatever you want to call it. He puts his faith in Christ. He knows just how important this Jesus is. And so that's where we're going to be again today. And in fact, we actually talked about how James referred to himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully submitted to the master's will. It's very important for us to submit to the Lord's will. He was willing to draw his very life from Christ. And finally, he was willing to humble himself below the Almighty. You see, these things James did, and he made it the focus of the very first verse he wrote to us. And now we come to the next few verses as he continues his letter, not only to the 12 tribes dispersed, but also the modern church, that's us, and anybody facing persecution for their faith in Christ. Church, I just need to make a quick side note here, but I think it needs to be said. We need to be reminded that you and I, we don't experience persecution in this country for being followers of Christ. Not like most people do in other parts of the world. I don't know if you've seen that poster, we got one hanging up downstairs, or you've seen the decals of the shirt that says this message or this book is illegal in 50-some countries, it's restricted in 38, and 14 areas, they're hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's places and people in various places that are beaten and murdered just because they call upon the name Jesus. If they pray in Jesus' name, they're tortured. So we don't experience persecution in this country for being Christians. Not yet. And if you've been following the culture, you will see that there's a time fast approaching what I consider the time that God's going to separate the goats from the sheep. So with that said, I want us to focus on the, the, the promises that Jesus makes because he makes many promises to us. He promised in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the Beatitudes, Jesus made many promises. The poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom. Those that mourn will be comforted. The gentle shall inherit the earth. The pure in the heart will see God. And on and on and on. He promised so much. And we know, based out of Romans, that for those that are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. But sometimes I feel like we gloss over those other promises that Jesus made. You know, the ones that we don't really like or they don't sit well with us. The ones that we see taking place before our eyes when we turn on the news or when we look at other countries when Christians are getting murdered. Those promises that he made. Like in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, that is Jesus, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, 
They will keep yours also, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Matthew 24, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Church, all nations, that's a sobering truth. It not only suggests every nation, but it kind of suggests that America is going to be in there too. And then there's Mark 8:34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples to him and said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for his sake and the gospels will gain it. Jesus made all these promises to us, and, and this is exactly what James begins to address here in the text, because these brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith. You'll remember that James was the highly respected leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, Messianic Jews, again, that just means that these Jewish people were, were believers in Jesus. They thought that he was the promised Messiah. The term Christian was derogatory and didn't come along until later on. And here's a little background. Here you have James running the church that God set him up into, writing to his brothers and sisters persecuted for their faith in Christ. And it's not as if James didn't know what they were going through. It's not that he was saying, hey, chin up, buttercup. Keep a sharp eye. Things will get better. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying, name it and claim it. You can get what you want just to have enough faith. He knows what they were going through. He knew they were being beaten, harassed, and assaulted, and in some cases murdered just to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how serious this Christ is. And what is his response to them as a pastor? Consider it a joy. What? Really? Is James, is he some kind of crazy man? Did he bump his head? I'm supposed to consider this a joy? Did he forget what was happening to these followers of Jesus? No, he didn't forget. He knew quite well. In fact, I mentioned last time I preached in James that he was just as ready as the next person to lose his life for Christ. In fact, he did not that long after. He was martyred. He wasn't just telling them to consider it a joy, but was telling them that because he knew that any moment he could be next. Yet he spoke with boldness and clarity, and that's what we have to do as Christians. All right. With that said, if you'll turn your Bibles in James chapter 1, we're looking at verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And if you are able, please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be alive and for the breath of my lungs. Thank you for this Christ that we're getting ready to hopefully exalt and magnify and lift up. Thank you for all the things that you do for us each and every day. God, I pray right now that everything spoken uh, from your word this morning would be used unto your glory that the Holy Spirit would take it and sanctify the believers in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing I want us to see from these three verses is the joy of trials. And I know that sounds ridiculous and crazy to most, especially in our upside down culture. 
But the fact of the matter is that God's word speaks more about joy than it does happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It lasts for a moment, then it's gone. Joy is everlasting contentment regardless of what you're going through. And notice here, this is also very important. James does not say if you go through trials. He says when you go through trials, indicating that it's going to happen. You can guarantee it. Y'all haven't figured me out yet. I like to do a little explaining on some of the words um, from the passage to help us get a better understanding. And so this time is no different. But um, the first word I think we should look at here is the uh, Greek word that we translate as consider. Now, see, in most cases, this word, we don't really think of it as far as its weightiness and what it truly means. I mean, you, you hear it all the time. Hey, would you consider helping me move? Would you consider loaning me $5? Absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. Would you consider this? Would you consider that? But when we really break the word down and figure out what it really means, it means to deeply ponder on a thing and to reflectively take into account whatever it is with an intention on acting in a certain way. Now, I know that was a mouthful, so I'll say it one more time. To consider something means to deeply ponder on the thing and to reflectively take into account whatever it is with the intention of acting in a certain way. You think back to school. Most of us probably haven't been there for a while. Those that are there, think back to school when you're given a test. You're sitting there, you're looking at the question or the equation or whatever it is, and rather than immediately selecting an answer, you ponder on the information and you look back through your mental filing cabinet, right? You have to consider every angle, every option, every recollection of everything you were ever taught in order to respond in the expected way. And when you're taking a test, the expected way is to pass the test, right? James is saying, guess what? This is no different. Trials are no different. You have to exercise extreme consideration about the trials you face in order that you can respond in a specific way. What way is that? Glad you asked. It's to respond in joy. That's what James said. Consider it a joy. You spend an adequate amount of time considering your situation and what you're going through, and then you respond in joy. That's what James is telling these persecuted Christians and what he's telling us when we face various trials. You must respond in joy. Why? Many of us are familiar or have sometimes seen 12 Angry Men. You've seen 12 Angry Men? Raise your hand. Seen that movie? Okay, well, good. So this won't go over like a lead balloon. <laughs> this movie is a courtroom drama, and it's about 12 angry men or 12 jurors, okay? And what they're doing is they're deliberating the conviction or acquittal of a defendant based on reasonable doubt. So this in turn forces every single one of them to question not only their morals, but their values. The story goes like this. There's an 18-year-old kid on trial for the alleged murder of his father. There are two options on the table. If there's any reasonable doubt, they are to return a verdict of not guilty. However, if none is found, he will be convicted and receive the death sentence. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, if you were that person, you would certainly want that, those men to consider everything going on in that situation. And so in a preliminary vote, all the jurors vote guilty except number eight. He questions the reliability of the two witnesses and the prosecution's claim that the murder weapon, a switchblade, was rare because he has the same knife. He argues that he cannot vote guilty because reasonable doubt exists. Having hung the jury, number eight suggests a secret ballot. 
He says, if everyone is still in agreed, he will agree and vote with everyone else. But the ballot receives one not guilty. And so juror three accuses juror five of who grew up in the slums of changing his vote out of sympathy. But juror nine reveals that he changed his vote, agreeing there should be some discussion. Juror eight argues that the noise of the passing train would have obscured the threat that one witness claimed to have heard the defendant tell his father, I'm going to kill you. Juror five changes his vote, as does juror 11, who believes the defendant, having returned to the apartment and been met by the police, was not trying to retrieve the weapon because the fingerprints had already been cleaned. So number eight points out, well, people, people often say, I'll kill you, and they don't mean it. So juror five and six in question, and eight question the witness's ability to have made it to his door in time to see the defendant fleeing 15 seconds after hearing the father's body hit the floor. Juror three becomes infuriated and accuses juror eight of being a sadistic public avenger. Juror three tries to attack juror eight, screaming, I'll kill you. Juror eight replies, well, you don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? So jurors two and six change their votes, tying the verdict to six to six as a thunderstorm begins. Juror four doubts the defendant's alibi based on the boy's inability to recall certain details, and juror eight tests juror four's own memory. Juror two questions the likelihood that the defendant, much shorter than his father, could have inflicted a dab words down wound, which jurors three and eight act out. Number five demonstrates that someone skilled with a switchblade as a boy would have been would have not stabbed downward. Impatient to leave, as you probably are now, <laughs> juror seven changes his vote and earns the ire of other jurors, especially 11. He insists unconvincingly that he actually thinks the defendant is not guilty. Jurors 12 and 1 change their votes, leaving only 3, 4, and 10. Juror 10 erupts in a vitriol against slum people. The others turn their back to him, and juror 4 tells him to sit down and not to open his mouth again. Number 8 reminds the rest, and this is important, that personal prejudice can cloud our judgments. Number four declares that the woman who saw the killing from across the street stands as solid evidence, and juror 12 reverts his vote, making it eight to four. And here it is. Number nine, seeing number four rub his nose, irritated by his glasses, realized that the witness had impressions on her nose indicating she wore glasses but did not wear them in court. The other jurors confirmed the same. And juror eight adds that she would not have wore them to bed, and the attack happened so swiftly that she would not have had time to put them on. 12, 10, and 4 change their vote to not guilty, leaving only number 3. He gives an or increasingly tortured string of arguments, building on earlier remarks about him and his son's relationship and why he wanted this guy to be guilty, but he ends up agreeing, not guilty. And you're saying, well, Pastor, what is the point of all that? Because that was painful. <laughs> only this. Because each of these men deeply and reflectively considered everything before them, were they able to respond in a specific way? Which is what James tells us we're supposed to do. They spared his life and found reasonable doubt because they considered every piece of information and every bit that they had before them. And when you can't consider, or when you don't have the ability to consider your situation properly, we never respond in joy especially when we face trials. The joy of trials is exactly that, your response of joy in the face of adversity. Why? Because it brings honor and glory to God and peace to your soul, knowing that there is an ultimate purpose 
in the pain and the trials we face. It's not just because. We may not like it. In fact, nobody I know really ever does. I certainly, and you ask my wife, I throw a bit of a tantrum when I can't sleep. But I don't, when I can't sleep and wake up in the middle of the morning and I'm stubbing my toe or stepping on Legos, I'm not jumping for joy thinking, yes, Lord, I appreciate that opportunity. <laughs> Nobody does that, right? But that's not what James is saying here either. What he's saying is, has, has to do with the way we perceive our situation and what we're facing. And then how we respond internally is what matters because how you respond internally is how you respond externally. If you've got kids, and I know most of us do, you've seen a child that obeys, but their countenance is like, mm -hmm. I did it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not exactly taking joy. And uh, John Piper, he was a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota since 1980. He recalls a time where his son wanted to borrow his car. Now, should you ever run into John Piper, don't quote me because I'm paraphrasing. But he says, yeah, you can borrow the car, but you've got to wash it first. And so his son fussed about it and stormed off, didn't want to do it. But eventually he comes back, right? And, he, and John says he stood at the doorway watching his son wash the car, and his heart broke a little bit. Now, it wasn't because he was doing a bad job, but because he could see the expression of anger and disgust on his son's countenance. His heart broke because his son took no joy in serving the father when that son was experiencing what he thought was a trial. Church, trials and pains will come whether you're a believer or not. But how you respond to them is entirely up to you. If you respond with anger and disgust at the situation or direct it to God, you're not experiencing joy, you're grieving God's heart. He looks at you and he looks at me and says, Dear child, it's not meant to hurt you. It's meant to strengthen you to pull you closer into my bosom and to cause you to lean on me, not you. If you consider everything that you go through, everything that comes your way, every trial, every pain, every temptation and strife that you experience as a believer, it's indeed to make you look more like the God of the universe, your creator and your savior. And when you consider all of that, Joy is, your, is overflowing. Joy is the only response. That's why it's so important to consider it a joy to face various trials. Church, I'm not saying you can't cry out to God in pain and suffering. It's not what I'm saying at all. The Bible doesn't say that either. What I'm saying is that it depends on how you perceive the situation. And when you do cry out, is it in complaint or is it in God, make me stronger and bring me through this, please, God. Too many times in my history, I've asked God to take things away. And then I realized that he wasn't doing it to hurt me. He was doing it so that I would lean on him and ask him to bring me through it so that I'd be stronger. All right, moving on. So the first thing I wanted us to see James telling us here is the joy of trials, which is in fact having joy in your trials. And the second thing I want you to see James telling us here is to embrace the joy of tests. You say, really, Pastor? First you want to be happy about my trials, now i got to be happy about the test I face? Yes. <laughs> we have to remember that uh, James has completely sold out to Christ. Okay, I don't think we understand those concepts near as much as they did in the old day, but 
he realizes that pain is part of following Jesus. He gave his life as a martyr. He realizes that you and I will be persecuted if our faith in Christ is unwavering and unashamed. In fact, if somebody said, hey, hey, Hernandez, what are you willing to bet millions of dollars on? Choosing random numbers to win a game or going through trials in your life? What do you think I'm going to say? I think you get the point. In, in church, I mentioned this before, but if we're not experiencing some kind of persecution from the enemy, we need to take a step back and look at ourselves. If we're not experiencing opposition from the enemy, why not? And we need to ask ourselves, if we're not experiencing the enemy attacking us, are we playing in the right ball field? Are we playing at all? Because you see, when sports, when work, when Snapchat and Twitter and comfort and convenience in the world start to fill your time, guess what? Satan ain't going to mess with you. He could care less. He doesn't even take notice. It's only when you start serving your king boldly and consistency that the enemy takes notice and then he becomes to become enraged. And I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but think about that. When you serve God, you enrage the enemy. That's when you'll find trials and persecutions coming. And I tell new believers this all the time because it's so important. And I think we all need to hear it, new believer or not. You can bet that trials and persecutions will come. Big time, especially as a new believer. Because you're no longer playing in Satan's team and it fills him with rage. The very reason why it's so important to come along not only new believers, but all believers alike and disciple each other is for the purpose of growing in godliness. Growing in godliness. If we're not growing in godliness, we're stuck in the spiritual infant stage. Church, how many infants do you know that can feed themselves, clothe themselves, protect themselves? I don't know any. Growth is essential to our sanctification. And here's a newsflash, which I hope we're all already familiar with, but we're all sinners. And if you want to start your day with humility at the foot of the cross, stand in front of the mirror every morning and tell yourself that you are a sinner, stand condemned under a holy God. And then when you're broken about it, preach the gospel to yourself. That God creator has given the blood of his son to save you. And then help come alongside other believers and shelter them. Instead of backbiting, gossiping, we ought to be helping one another. This is literally why we have church. It's not a place where perfect people come that don't have any problems. If you're perfect and you don't have any problems, you are in the wrong place. We have church to shelter one another, to love each other, and to help each other when we go through trials and persecutions, because we will. Most of us have or are. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let me back up. Um, James knows that following Jesus brings persecution. He tells us that the only way to bring glory to God, because this is the ultimate goal, and I don't know if you're familiar with catechisms, but the Westminster Catechism asks the first question is, what is the chief end of mankind? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
That's the only way to bring joy to God or glory to God is to choose joy in your tests. There's nothing worse for, than an unbeliever than witnessing a baby Christian who complains about everything. My coffee's not perfect. I stubbed my toe. It's too cold. God, can you warm us up? It's too hot, God. Can you cool us down? God, help. I'm tired. Work is hard. God, if you could just, God, why me? It doesn't bring glory to God. And again, hear me, I'm not saying we can't cry out to the Lord. It's all about how we perceive it and how our inward response is. But this is a serious problem in the Christian world, I've noticed. When we find it easier to complain than take joy in our circumstance and in our testing, it would do us well. In fact, this is what I do. When I find myself complaining, I bring to mental image the memory of Christ as he's flogged and the flesh is ripped from his bone. Because when I think about that, I can then question myself and say, Hernandez, what do you have to complain about on this earth? Absolutely nothing, because my life could be a heck of a lot worse than it is. That's the end goal. Glorifying God. And the only way to do that is to choose joy in your trials and to take joy in the testing of your faith. Why? Because when people on the outside look in, they should not see Christians who fight and bicker and gossip and complain about everything. What non-believer would look in on that and say, yes, that's what I want to do. Go to church. Most of them are probably already doing that anyway. When they look upon the lives of followers of Christ, you and me, they should see Christians who know that pain hurts. They know that death is real and that cancer kills. We know. And that persecution is a way of life for those who follow Jesus. But they should also see God, or Christians who glorify God in their sufferings. They should see Christians who are real, not fake. They should see Christians who know that life is hard, but they choose joy. And they should see Christians who love to come to church and serve not only their heavenly king, but each other in love, compassion, and edification. Because this is what makes a difference to a lost person. This is what shows them Christ. And in the context of this book, James says, this is why we need to choose joy, because testing of your faith produces endurance. And if you look back at the text, James chapter 1, verse 3, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And faith is defined as, someone, as confidence in someone or something. So when we say we have faith in Christ, what we're really saying is that we have confidence in who he is and what he said he did and what the scriptures say he accomplished. We have faith in his perfect, obedient life, his gruesome and painful death, and we have faith in his glorious resurrection. And here's the best part. We have faith that when it's all said and done, we're going to be reigning with him in glory forevermore. And this testing of our faith is a good thing because it produces endurance. And what is the point of endurance? Well, the definition, if you Google it, is the fact or power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. Basically, getting knocked down seven times and getting up eight. Let's see if we can illustrate this for you. Let's look. If you think about Job, everybody's familiar with Job. The book of Job starts off, tells you uh, Job had everything. He had an abundant life, big family, lots of livestock, many servants. I mean, he had everything. He was basically the Jeff Bezos or, or Bill Gates of his time, at least materially speaking. But in an instant, it feels like it all disappears. But as it goes through that, it tells you that the sons of God come to present themselves before God, and Satan came also. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered him and said, roaming around and walking around on the earth. 
The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge of protection about him and his house and all that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And then here it is. But put forth your hand and touch all that he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. That's what Satan does continually, by the way. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed the presence of the Lord. And what feels like the blink of an eye, Job loses his oxen, his donkeys, the servants were killed, the sheep were burned up, more servants were burned up, the house falls on his kids, everything. He tears his robe, shaves his head, hits the ground and worships the Lord. Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then the scripture says, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And you can imagine the hate and the anger and the frustration Satan was probably feeling in the way Job responded. So he goes back to God and they have a similar exchange. And listen how this arrogant enemy responds. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And now Satan goes out chomping at the bit to take his health from him. Scripture says Satan smote Job with sore boils from the top of his head or the crown of his head down to the sole of his foot. And yet he sits there in ashes scraping himself, which sounds incredibly painful. And here his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, sweetie. In all of this, though, if we never had the rest of the account of Job, we would expect him to do exactly that, to curse God and die. But we do have the arrest of the account, and it says that Job responds. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Here's the important part. Shall we indeed accept only good from God and not accept adversity? adversity? Then the scripture again tells us, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. These great many tests that Job goes through serve to strengthen his faith, not destroy it. And I'm quite positive he probably would have gone through testing all his life to be built up to a moment like this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will deliver us. And there it is. People will tell you all the time, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's crap. That's not biblical. Job would certainly disagree and Paul disagrees right here as well. The spirit of life even. Why? That's the question. It's not a matter of if, but when and why. And Paul told us, just in that verse I read, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. Church, the tests we face are to strengthen our faith in God. The purpose of increasing our faith is so that we can be used of God to His glory. They're to make us stronger. But that faith only makes us stronger when we respond properly. And a test is meant to discover one's nature or quality. Another one of my favorite pastors, John MacArthur, 
He talks about tests we face as Christians like this. He says, quote, God brings tests to prove and increase the strength and quality of one's faith and to demonstrate the validity of our faith. If a believer fails the test by wrongly responding, that test becomes a temptation or a solicitation to evil. That's how serious tests are. And church, it's not a matter of, of when. It's a matter of how we respond. If we're truly following Christ, we will suffer. You need only recall God's words to Ananias. God says, Ananias, go to Paul. Heal him so he can see. Wait a minute, God. I've heard about this guy. He's killed lots of your people. He plans to persecute more. And you want me to go heal this man? Well, Ananias goes. But here's what I want you to hear out of that passage of Scripture. This is what God says. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Again, quoting John Piper, he says this about how we bring God glory. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. When we're most satisfied in him, we experience and respond in joy at the trials we face in this fleeting life. It's the only possible outcome. But when we're not and our satisfaction is not deeply woven into the fabric of who God is, we can't respond in joy because we're not taking complete satisfaction in him. The late R.C. Sproul, he, he tells about a meeting when he went to go visit a friend who had cancer. And church, I know many of you have been there and um, hopefully are not there and, and are hoping to never go back there. But he says this lady was buoyant and ebullient, which means she's just very cheerful and full of energy, even when she was diagnosed. But on the day he goes to visit her during chemotherapy, he says, quote, she was a bit down. She wasn't her normal, buoyant, cheerful self. I said, Dora, how are you doing? She looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, R.C., it's hard to be a Christian with your head in the toilet. Then she laughed and the joy came back into her eyes, end quote. Church, my point is this. Trials will come, big and small. They will. It's just a matter of how we respond. You have to choose joy. You have to. All right, so we saw the joy of trials and the joy of tests. The last thing, and I'll move quickly, that I want us to see here from James is the joy of sanctification. As we're going to see in a few moments, this is the entire purpose of tests and trials, is to sanctify us, to make us look like Christ. First, we have to talk about what sanctification is. The internet will tell you that sanctification is the act or process of acquiring sanctity or being made or becoming holy. That's not entirely inaccurate, but if you look at Scripture, it's slightly different. In Romans, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome, eternal life. So here he's talking about how we were before Christ and how after Christ, sanctification is to give us the opportunity to live rightly before God. And then in Peter, Peter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as foreigners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit 
to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So here, Peter says, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which is what? Well, the very next thing he says is to obey Jesus Christ. So again, it's right living before God. It's the right living in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing God glory and finishing the race. And so first, I just want to mention that sanctification, church, is a process only believers experience. If you have at some point realized that you stand condemned before a holy God, and I hope all of us have, and that same God says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, and then you've quickly realized after that that you need to have a Savior because you cannot save yourself and you've put your faith in Christ, you are experiencing sanctification which is the process of looking more like Christ every day, living rightly before God today more than you did yesterday. There's a competition from two Greek words. It's called treus and athlos, which means three competition. We call it a triathlon. Now, there's a branch in the triathlon called the Ironman, and some of you may be familiar with this, but it's a competition of 140 miles. It's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile ride. Now consider what would be required for training for that competition. And in case if you ever want to compete and you look it up online, the, most people will tell you that it's suggested you complete at least three or four training sessions a week. Now those training sessions, each of them would last for hours and you would do multiple things. And the whole purpose is to repeat the same movements to attempt to build stability and strength and range of motion with the purpose of what? Finishing the race. That's what sanctification is. Now, I may be the only crazy person in here, but I do enjoy running, and no, I don't have to be chased. But it seems like the first day is always the easiest. It's the second or third day where I start to lose motivation, right? But consider training for a triathlon. 112-mile bike ride, 26 miles, and a 2.5-mile swim. And the whole purpose to training is to finish. That's what James says. James 1.4, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The purpose of our trials and our tests is to make us complete, sanctify us, lacking in nothing so that you can finish the race. And training is essential. Nobody I know sits on the couch and goes, ah, I'm going to get buffed this year, and then stays on the couch. You don't do that. You have to actually put forth work. And in order to grow in godliness, you face trials and tribulations so that when you pass the test and you respond in joy, you're growing in godliness. You're training. Paul says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who loved his appearing. Here in 2 Timothy, Paul reminds us that sanctification in this life is a marathon. You're not going to get there quickly. It's a slow, gradual process that brings us near the finish line. And the finish line is being welcomed into glory. If we hope to finish the race... We have to take joy in our sanctification. James says, do this and let endurance have its perfect results so that you, dear brothers and sisters, will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sanctification is to build your endurance so that one day you and I will look like Jesus. We'll be perfect and complete. 
You will have finished the race and you will have kept the faith. And so in closing, the, the reason we should consider it a joy to face various trials and the reason we should consider it a joy to face, face various tests and the reason we should consider sanctification a joy is because the God of this universe, our creator, Christ Jesus, the one that the scripture says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This one who did this because of my sin and because of your sin gave us the example to follow. And the purpose is because it brings glory to God. Brings glory to God. Jesus said that, Father, glorify me now that you may receive glory. It strengthens our faith and it makes us look more like Jesus and shows the outsider, the lost person, because that's what we're supposed to do. Shows them what true biblical joy is. That even as we suffer as Christians, we suffer well because we know who holds our tomorrow. And why should you consider a privilege to suffer for Christ? Paul sums it up in Philippians. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Church, hear me. If you're following Jesus, you will face persecution, you will face trials, and you will be tested beyond what you can handle. But the end result is your sanctification so that you and I, by the transforming power and effectual work of the Holy Spirit, will one day look like the Messiah in all his glory and will reign forevermore. That's the purpose. And that, church, when you consider everything about that, is a great reason to have joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for all the things.